Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 49, Jessica Salerno, Discussed Reactions to Gruesome Photographs. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Jessica Salerno. Jess is assistant professor in the School of Social and Behavioral Sciences at Arizona State University. Her research frequently focuses on the application of social psychology to the legal context, including how emotion affects decision-making and how jurors evaluate the quality of scientific evidence in court. Our podcast today features Jessica's new article, Seeing Red, Discuss Reactions to Gruesome Photographs in Color, but Not in Black and White, Increase Convictions. The article was recently published in the journal Psychology, Public Policy, and Law. In it, Jess looks at a time-honored evidence issue, gory photographs. Conventional wisdom states that gruesome photographs fan the flames of jury anger, causing jurors to lash out at the defendant indiscriminately. As a result, gory photographs have become a staple of teaching Rule 403, the rule excluding evidence for unfair prejudice. Jess's article asks whether conventional wisdom is actually right, and whether the conventional response, using black and white photographs rather than color ones, might make a difference. Jess, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Your article deals with what I suspect is a topic of great interest to litigators of a variety of stripes, gruesome photographs and their effect on the jury. Before we get into your actual study, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with studying this topic in the first place? How did you come to study gruesome photographs as a psychologist? Sure. Well, it actually started in graduate school. At the time, I was heavily focused on how jurors react to science in the courtroom, which has a very sort of cognitive and rational side of things. At the same time, I remember seeing a documentary where I saw for myself, gruesome photographs for the first time. It was actually a video of a case of children who had been murdered. And I remember having an incredibly strong emotional reaction to it. And it struck me how difficult it is for the legal system to deal with that emotional reaction, how to quantify it, how to decide whether that should be part of the process or not, and how to control it. At the same time, I was taking some, I'm a social psychologist, so I was taking classes in social cognition and learning about how emotion affects decision-making processes. So that kind of came together for me thinking, wow, this is something that is really pervasive. Any case that involves an injury or violence of any kind, jurors are probably going to be exposed to really disturbing things that they don't see in their everyday life and how that might affect their decision-making process going forward. Conceptually, why might we be concerned about these gruesome photographs? So from a lay perspective, I think the concern is always about eliciting these strong emotions, but that's largely, I think, armchair psychology. What are the scientific reasons why we might worry about gruesome photographs? And I guess what I'm asking here is, what are the known psychological mechanisms that might be at play here? Well, there's actually a lot of them, which is why this is a really important research area. There's been decades of research in social psychology about how feeling particularly negative emotion can affect our decision-making processes. 
In my work with gruesome photographs, the two types of emotion that are sort of most commonly discussed is anger and disgust. And we have lots of research showing how once we rouse these kinds of emotions, they become completely intertwined into our cognitive processes. It becomes completely intertwined in how we evaluate information, what information we pay attention to, all of these things that can ultimately affect our judgment. So just to give you a, a couple of many examples, when we feel anger, that creates a need to punish it makes us really certain in our own opinion. It can often make our processing of information more shallow. Some people have characterized the effect of feeling anger as turning people from intuitive scientists into intuitive prosecutors, that it can create a need to blame and punish someone, and then our cognitive process corrals the evidence to justify doing that. With disgust, we see a lot of similar things. People are more certain in their opinion. There's, again, this need to punish. We tend to judge acts as more morally wrong. There's a whole long list. So we know a lot in the general social psychology literature about the potentially biasing effects of rousing these emotions. And now it's important to apply those to these legal settings to make sure that when judges are thinking about the balance between the probative value of these photographs and the potentially prejudicial value, that they're aware of these potentially biasing effects to weigh against the information that they provide. What's the difference or what's the distinction between anger and disgust? And why does that distinction matter for psychological reasons? That's a great question. And I think this is more of a, a theoretical question than potentially a practical one for the legal system. So this is a really interesting area because they're really in the middle of this debate. What is the difference between anger and disgust? Can we distinguish between the two? At the most basic level, we tend to feel anger when we see an act of harm against someone that was intentional. We tend to feel disgust when we see some kind of violation of the body. And with the gruesome photographs, those two things are sort of baked in <laughs> to gruesome photographs and are always going to be there. A lot of my work is actually about the special things that happen when you get the combination of anger and disgust together. So in an earlier paper, a co-author and I were discussing moral outrage and how we were kind of characterizing moral outrage as a combination of anger and disgust. And what we found is that feeling only anger or feeling only disgust is less predictive of a need to punish someone than feeling the combination. And that combination is what a lot of people call moral disgust. So to give you a concrete example, you know, we might feel anger when we get stuck in traffic because we have a goal obstructed and we feel anger. We might feel pure disgust when we see blood or vomit. But those two things aren't necessarily going to lead to a need to punish. But a lot of these things where you get a crime, for example, a murder, where they both feel anger about the harm and disgust about the bodily violation, that combination of anger and disgust, that moral disgust, that moral outrage, is what creates a need to punish that can bias the decision-making process. I want to turn to the gruesome photographs now. To start, as I understand, prior to your experiment, there was some prior work done on the effect of having gruesome photographs. Can you just give us a a real quick summary of what the literature looked like previous to your work. Yeah, absolutely. So before this paper was published, there were about nine studies, nine experiments that had been done across a variety of legal situations where they manipulated the presence of seeing a gruesome photograph or not, and found that generally about eight out of those nine experiments showed some sort of either pro-prosecution or pro-plaintiff effect. Seeing gruesome photographs compared to not showed that people were more likely to vote guilty, more likely to assign a harsher punishment in criminal trials, also more likely to assign higher damages in civil trials. 
there had been a number of studies that kind of showed that photographs have an effect, but they didn't necessarily talk about why or how those photographs were affecting judgments, if that was a probative effect, if that was a prejudicial effect. And so that was the aim of, of the studies that, that I conducted is to try, and it's a very complicated question, but to try and start teasing apart how much of this is a prejudicial affective process and how much of it is probative. So tell us about that experiment. How did you try to test the effect of gruesome photographs on fact-finding? So I conducted a set of mock jury experiments where we, again, are showing people stimulus that represents evidence from a murder trial. And what we're doing is we're randomly assigning people to see just the evidence without the gruesome photographs, but hearing a verbal description of the photographs. So having a coroner describe the injuries. And then another set of participants saw gruesome photographs of the murder victim in color. And then the key in what makes this study a little bit different than the prior ones is we also had a condition where they saw the same photographs, so they got the same information but they saw them in black and white instead. And the idea behind that was to see if we still give them the information, they still see the photograph, but if we kind of reduce the emotional disturbing nature by taking out the color, making it a little bit less vivid, if that would reduce potentially the bias. So after they reviewed that evidence, we asked them a set of questions. We asked them to report what emotions they were feeling, whether they thought the defendant was guilty or not. And so what we were trying to find out is if the participants who saw the color photographs were more likely to vote guilty compared to those who did not see the photographs or saw them in black and white. Just to be clear, what you have is everyone gets the trial evidence in general, as well as verbal descriptions of the photographs. And then on top of those, in a separate set, they get the same amount, but they get the black and white. And then there's another group that gets the same amount. And rather than black and white, they get color. Exactly. And also the other important piece I think here is the color photographs don't really add any additional information that's relevant to the case. All you get is just the color as opposed to the black and white view. Yes, exactly. So I thought it was important to make sure that the color wasn't probative in some way. And so there may be cases where seeing the color is necessary for some reason. There may be some case fact where the color is necessary. But in this case, the color wasn't adding any additional information that would help them judge guilt. So what were the key findings out of this experiment? So out of the first experiment, we found that the participants who saw the color photographs were significantly more likely to vote guilty in the case because of the disgust that they elicited. So people who saw the color photographs reported feeling more disgust, and the more disgust they felt, the more likely they were to vote guilty compared to if they just read the verbal descriptions of that information. And what was key is that we did not find that to be the case when the photographs were in black and white. So when people saw the photographs in black and white, they were equally likely to vote guilty compared to those who didn't see the photographs at all. And then there's this other effect that's so interesting, which is that color reduces the sensitivity of the mock jurors to defense evidence. So they're basically not processing information as well either, right? Yeah. In the follow-up study, we wanted to look at the idea that rousing these negative emotions can also affect verdicts indirectly by biasing how they process the other case evidence. What we did in the second experiment is we had the same manipulation. We had three groups, people who saw just verbal descriptions, people who saw the verbal descriptions plus color photos, and then the black and white group. But in addition, we also manipulated the strength of the defense case. 
So half of the jurors were randomly assigned to hear a very, very strong defense case. And the other half of the jurors read a very weak version of the defense case. And I, I made this difference pretty stark. So we really should have seen a big difference in verdict based on which version they read. What we found is that in the control group, so people who just read the verbal descriptions did exactly what we would want them to do. When they read a really strong defense case, they were much more likely to vote not guilty compared to if they heard a weak defense. But if they saw the color photographs, that effect was significantly reduced. So one thing that my study can't speak to and is a question for future research is I'm not sure if, they, if it made them pay less attention to the defense evidence or if they paid attention but were motivated to disregard it. But what we're finding is that the strength of the defense evidence is not having as much of an effect on their decisions. And unfortunately, for this finding, showing the pictures in black and white did not reduce that effect. So regardless of whether they saw the pictures in color or black and white, any version of those photos made them less sensitive to a really strong defense. And one thing that's kind of scary is we measured an individual difference variable in our jurors. We wanted to see if some jurors were more sensitive to these photos than others. And we did that by asking them about something called bodily awareness, which is the degree to which you are sensitive to the sort of affective, emotional, physiological responses in your body. So when we limited that analysis to people who tend not to really pay attention or notice their emotions very much, this super strong defense evidence manipulation actually had no effect on their verdicts, which is kind of scary. From a practical standpoint, these results seem quite significant. So not only do you have evidence now that color photographs increase the convictions, but it also reduces the juror's ability to rationally consider evidence. And then I think actually one of the key pieces of the findings is that black and white photographs seems to be an effective countermeasure. Now, I'd like to go back to our discussion about disgust and anger again and probe a little bit further on that line of inquiry from the various things that you're trying to do in your study. The experiment suggests that the principal emotion that's going on here is the disgust emotion. Why is that important? Or is that primarily of theoretical interest? Teasing apart the disgust and anger. So one thing that's interesting about these findings is that the color versus black and white manipulation, that potential solution of showing these in black and white is pretty specific to the disgust piece. Taking color out of a photograph is making the bodily violation less vivid. So it's kind of ramping down the disgust specifically, not necessarily the anger, which is what I found in my study. So if you see a color version of intense harm to a vulnerable victim, you're probably going to feel anger regardless of seeing the color of the blood and seeing the more vivid details. So this specific solution is really geared towards and targeting disgust as opposed to anger. And what I found in this study and some of also my prior work is that at least in, in the studies that I've conducted, disgust has been a more consistent predictor of guilty verdicts than anger. We read a lot in the punishment literature about anger and how anger makes people want to punish. And I think we don't focus on disgust as much. But in my work, I've really found that disgust seems to be one of the most consistent predictors of guilty verdicts as opposed to anger. And this specific intervention, practically speaking, I think is important because it really is kind of specific to ramping down the disgust by taking out the color of the photographs. So let's talk implications. What does this mean for the legal system? What should we do in response to your findings? The issue that I think this is most relevant to is Rule 403 and, and the balance that the judge has to determine between the probative value and the prejudicial value of this kind of evidence. It's a really, really difficult judgment that we ask judges to make. 
having them somehow try to quantify how much probative value is in each photo, then how much potential prejudicial impact, and then to weigh them. It's, it's a very complicated and difficult thing. And, and judges are really forced to rely on their folk psychology ideas of how emotion might affect the process. And so I think what these findings suggest is that we really do have to pay attention to these potentially prejudicial effects of rousing their emotions and try to limit them as much as possible without sacrificing the probative value. So of course, it would be very unrealistic to suggest that we don't include these photographs at all anymore. But I think the legal system needs to start thinking about the mode in which they're presented, how often they're presented, how many are presented, if there are ways such as putting them in black and white or other ways where we might be able to at least reduce the emotional impact as much as we can while not sacrificing that probative value. Here's a somewhat more philosophical question for you. I can completely understand what an attorney, and this is not what you were talking about just now, but I can understand how an attorney should use the information that you've uncovered, which is that if you're a defense attorney, you almost certainly should try to get in black and white. And if you're a prosecutor, presuming that you want to use powerful evidence, you should presumably want to use color. But I'm not so clear about the implications for Rule 403. So color photographs are powerful evidence, but how do we know that color is exerting an unfair influence? Or how do we know that color is unfair evidence? And the reason why I ask this is that it seems to me that it's all relative value, right? There's no baseline for what evidence is worth. So how do we know that it's not the black and white format that is unfairly defanging or weakening evidence? as opposed to the color evidence or the color photographs that is unfairly augmenting its power? That's a super interesting question. And also one could argue, I mean, color is the most realistic depiction of what happened. And so, you know, why say that that's unfair? I think what we need to think about is what judgment is being made and whether that color is probative or not. So just to sort of take the, the opposite stances of my paper, for example, in punishment decisions, if you come from a retributive punishment motivation, many people argue that the emotions that you feel when you see harm to someone are probative. They're our barometer for how much harm has been done, and that helps us calibrate how much punishment is proportionate to that harm. And so one could argue the color is better because it's a more complete view and that emotional response to the color is actually probative to the judgment. I tend to, to focus pretty specifically in my work on guilt judgments because I think it's a little bit harder to argue what informational value the color has. And so if it's the case that the color is highly prejudicial, I think the judge needs to think about is that given the case, given the case facts and given the actual judgment that's being made, is that color, does it add any probative value beyond what the black and white would show and enter that into the sort of balancing act? Final question for you. So what's next? Are there follow-up studies that you plan to do in this area or studies that you'd like to encourage other people to do that are related to your study? Yeah, absolutely. I have all kinds of really exciting stuff going on right now. We're doing a bunch of follow-up studies right now to try and we have several goals. So one goal is to try and make these studies a little bit more ecologically valid, meaning a little bit more generalizable to the real world. This was actually one of the first studies done in the States that was not relying on college students. So we're going to take that a step further and we're going to bring community members in and we're going to actually have them deliberate as a group. We're going to have them watch trial videos that are a little bit closer to what they actually see in the real world. What I'm really excited about is incorporating psychophysiological monitoring. A lot of the 
these studies that have been done so far on this rely on jurors to report their emotions themselves. And we know that people are often aren't aware of their emotions. They might have reasons to not accurately or truthfully report those things. And so we're actually going to hook people up to some monitoring so that we can see in real time what kind of physiological and affective reactions they're having to this evidence and how that predicts their ultimate judgments, as well as I'm, I'm really excited to incorporate the deliberation piece into this. How do jurors talk about these photos? How do they use them? Does the deliberation process reduce this bias by forcing them to justify their opinion? Or is there some kind of emotion contagion where the discussion process actually exacerbates the bias? So those are a few of the, the areas that I'm going in next that I'm really excited about. I'm hoping that the field, especially in specifically related to gruesome photographs, moves towards trying to get at this question, not so much of do the photographs affect judgments, but how and why. Because I think for a judge, hearing that the photographs affect the judgments, but not knowing why or through what routes, it's less helpful. I think the more we can try and come up with ways to try and actually tease apart the sort of affective prejudicial effects and the probative effects would be really helpful in general to the legal system. Well, Jess, thanks for taking the time to talk about this great new study on gruesome photographs. Great having you on the show. Thank you so much. Jess's study of gruesome photographs is part of a theme on this podcast to feature psychological scholarship, either questioning or confirming long-standing assumptions in evidence law. I really like doing these episodes for two primary reasons. First, this research not only tries to improve our evidence doctrines in their search for accuracy, but it also highlights an empirically-based perspective that I think is important. Folk wisdom is all well and good, but the real question is whether it stands up to modern experimental techniques. Second, my hope is that these episodes connect legal practitioners and jurists to interdisciplinary scholarship that they might not otherwise see. There are a lot of thoughtful social scientists like Jess working out there to better inform the legal system, and I hope that this podcast can serve as something of a bridge. I suspect that the prejudice quantified in the article about gruesome photographs will be useful information the next time a defense attorney or a prosecutor or a judge encounters a gruesome photograph in court. These legal actors don't have to guess about the photograph's effect or the mechanism through which it influences the jury. Jess's work has now helped to answer those questions. I, for one, have already changed the way that I teach gory photographs to my evidence students, and I suspect that the work will change the way that you handle them too, whether it's in the classroom or in the courtroom. That does it for this episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith, assisted by Riley Beal. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.